I deal with trauma by joking and and uh oh, yeah me too that's why I converted to Judaism is because I was like oh here's like a whole culture that is making memes out of their generational trauma okay I'm in friends and welcome back to another episode of pickles and vodka the mental health podcast where imperfect people have imperfect conversations i'm christina your host and before i proceed any further i want to thank you to everyone who commented on my last episode in which i celebrated three years uh, booze free i don't like to say sober because i am not sober in the traditional sense of the word i, I still use cannabis and um other drugs to cope with the misery and brutality of reality. Uh, but that's another podcast episode in and of itself. Um, I, I really want to thank you to people who encouraged me and said that they think it's cool that I haven't had a drink in three years. Uh, I agree. I, I also think it's cool. Um, I don't think that I'm better because I don't drink. I don't think I'm less of an addict. Uh, I just... It's something I did for myself, not for anyone else, and I'm really fucking proud of myself, so thank you. Before I get to today's guest, I just wanted to get a few housekeeping things out of the way. First of all, if you have not answered my recent pickle poll, uh, you still have a week to do so, and then I'll read your answers on next week's episode. This week, the poll is, what quote-unquote negative emotion were you able to reframe and use to the benefit of your mental health? I'll say it again. What negative, in quotes, emotion were you able to reframe and use to the benefit of your mental health? Um, Next week, I'll be reading my answer as well as any answers that you all submit. It'll be lots of fun and hopefully we can get a cool conversation going. Again, the, the reason I started these silly little polls was to just engage with my community more. I really like uh, starting conversations. Like I said, it's the reason I started this podcast. And honestly, social media is one of my least favorite aspects of this venture. I'm not very good at it. I'm not good at posting regularly and engaging with people and all those other things that you're supposed to do as a content creator. But I really do enjoy hearing what you all think and providing a platform from which we can start these deeper conversations. And not that they have to be deep conversations, even just having stupid surface level conversations about mental health is better than having no conversation at all. So I'm I'm a big fan of memes. Um, Oh, that reminds me. I was trying to think of uh, what I should say for this week's mental health update, because it, it hasn't felt like I've accomplished a lot in the last week. I haven't really been feeling bad, but I haven't been feeling good either. Life is just okay. We're surviving. We're vibing, if you will. Whenever that happens, I feel kind of uneasy. Like, when is the other shoe going to drop? When am I going to have to be thrust into survival mode again? And I saw this post on Facebook of all places. I say of all places, but I get a lot of my content from Facebook. I'm embarrassed to admit it. But I saw this Twitter post that I want to read because it kind of made me feel better about not having anything to share. It made me feel better about just kind of being stagnant, if you will. So the tweet is from at 
V Lonely Lulu, and it is, someone told me, whenever your life is feeling stagnant or as if nothing is happening, that means you're being given the time and space to heal and release the baggage that you cannot carry to where you're meant to go soon. And I haven't looked at that shit the same since. And I could really relate to that because my life does feel stagnant sometimes. And sure, that comes from being raised in a perpetual state of crisis. So when there isn't something chaotic happening, I I feel like something's wrong, like something bad's going to happen. But what if I looked at it differently, like nothing's happening and that means I'm having the time and space to heal. It's kind of like a vacation, (laughs) for lack of a better term. Like, this quote-unquote boring time in my life is actually allowing me to recover, or if I had to pick a different word, it would be process all of the other traumatic shit that's happened to me in recent years. So boring is not bad. Stagnancy is not sad. (laughs) I'm turning into Dr. Seuss. But yeah, I thought that was cool and I wanted to read it. Another thing I wanted to read for you this week is a review that my brother Andrew gave me for episode 81, While the Inca is Drying, uh, in which I interviewed my friend Bianca about her breakup. This is more of a story and less of a review. So Andrew sent me a series of messages yesterday at 3 a.m. his time. He lives in Guam with his wife, Abby. So technically they live in the future. But anyway, Andrew messaged me about that podcast episode and his real-time reaction to it, and I thought it was really funny and wanted to share it with you all. So he says, Dude, when Bianca said, I need a pickle for my vodka, I fucking lost it. But instead of laughing, I was like, Oh! In capital letters. And as I was assembling a desk at the time, Abby heard it from the other room and said, What happened? And I was like, Nothing. I heard a funny joke. And she said she thought I got hurt. Ha ha ha. Looking back... I sounded kind of like Gandalf when Saruman knocked him on his ass, so I understand the confusion. (laughs) We grew up being fed Lord of the Rings through an IV, basically. Uh, We were total nerds, and uh, we quote Lord of the Rings a lot to this day, so that's where that was coming from. But I, I told Bianca, my guest in that episode, what Andrew said, and she said, LMAO, that is so specific. I need to look up this specific sound. So, you guys, I actually found the clip, and I'm going to play you that part. Remember, this is the sound that my brother Andrew made when Bianca said, I need a pickle for my vodka. It would be wise, my friend. I think I can play this because it's 30 seconds or less. When did Saruman the wise abandon reason for madness? Okay, so (laughs) you heard the sound Gandalf made when Saruman knocked him on his ass, right? Uh, I'm just picturing my brother making that sound, building a desk and listening to my podcast, and it just just makes me really happy. And hopefully some of you will be amused by it, if not um, enlightened. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. Um, I want to talk about today's guest because she's a really fucking cool person. Her name is Nicole Hughes. I met her in Seattle in summer of 2020. We were at a lake party. Um, I actually went with my ex, uh, also named Andrew. God, there's a lot of Andrews in my life. It was the first time I had met any of his friends, and it was also the first time that I 
went out and did something social since lockdown. So um, I was pretty fucking anxious, but everyone was pretty cool. And I remember talking to Nicole while floating on an inner tube. And at one point I gave her my vape to keep in her fanny pack so it wouldn't get wet. We talk about it a little bit in our recording, but she is a sufferer of chronic pain as well as uh, a myriad of mental health issues. And she also recently converted to Judaism. And so she talks about all that. In addition to being a mental health and chronic pain advocate, Nicole is a poet. And I wanted to read one of her poems that she posted on her Instagram before I played our interview because I think it it's really beautiful and really captures what it's like to not just suffer from chronic pain, but just to be in a body and to feel trapped and uh, doomed, if you will. And um, anyway, I just really like it, so I'm going to read it. So the title of this poem is just the number three. I have come to be a symphony, percussive snap of knee, my hip a plucked string, ankles rolling as a timpani. My muscles ache in a mournful key, vibrating beneath my drum-taut skin, a note suspended in misery. A sharp intake of breath, pain, my conductor, marks the beat. Um, I'll also read you the caption she wrote when she posted this poem because it's a great introduction to Nicole and uh, what she's all about. So uh, she posted this to her writing Instagram at write words like stones. I'm realizing that the words those of us with chronic pain, fatigue, and illness have to describe our embodiment are inadequate in soliciting empathy from those who are able-bodied. Surely, if they knew the totality of it, the absoluteness of disability, they would reach out a helping hand. That is what I'm telling myself, at least, because the alternative that they know and just do not care is almost unbearable to consider. Honestly, that's the best introduction that I can think of for Nicole to fully capture the, the vulnerability and uh, the bravery that, that she has that I know her for. She has a way of words that is just so brutal and real and beautiful. She is eloquent as hell and hilarious and I can't wait for you all to hear our conversation so with that said again don't forget to answer the pickle poll on my Instagram and also uh, if you have thoughts on any of the stuff that uh, me and Nicole talk about then let me know and I might talk about them on the next episode all right enjoy hello 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 Oh, I guess I have to start my video now. I'm wearing a sports bra. <laughs> that's, so that's... It looks like I'm naked because the microphone is like, right? <laughs> I know. I mean, we were very spicy here on Pickles and Vodka. Did you not know? <laughs> Every interview is nude. <laughs> that's, that's the secret twist. Every time you have a guest on, they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a secret to my wild success. <laughs> mm-hmm. How are you doing today? Um, I'm okay today. You know, it's, uh, you know, Saturday. Just vibing, existing. Yeah. I yeah. like I like the pink mirror behind you. It makes me very happy. 
Thank you. Yeah, I've tried to like create an environment that is reflective of my personality. This is like just my standard work setup. And so every professional meeting, I have Baby Yoda and Padme in the background. And like, see, the yeah. listeners can't see this, that I'm nude and you have Baby Yoda in the background. Like this is, yeah. this kind of reminds me of when we met because I don't think I was wearing a top then either. I was wearing, we were on the lake. I, I was describing yeah. how we met to someone yesterday and I said, oh, I met her on a lake. <laughs> no, I said I said in a lake. I met her in a lake because I believe yeah. we were floating. Yeah. I mean, like we met on land and then like you had me hold your vape and <laughs> and phone in my fanny pack because you were unprepared for like deep sea diving. Uh I forgot about that. <laughs> Dude, I have a vape right now. It's covered in cat hair. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's quite awesome, is it not? <laughs> Um, so your name is Nicole, but other than that, yeah. the listeners don't really know anything about you. And uh, like we just said, we met in a deep sea adventure and there was a fanny pack involved. Um, but I don't know you that well either. And I'm really excited to chat with you today. Yeah, I, I appreciate you reaching out and, and having me on. And, um, you know, hopefully it's, I don't know, entertaining, infotaining uh, to your listeners. <laughs> oh, I've never heard that expression before. I like it infotainment that's like a standard like media criticism like (laughs) news msnbc cnn that's infotainment oh my god the other day i went to the gym for the first time in two months Uh, i paid ten dollars to planet fitness and i'd never go that's my deep dark secret but i i happened to station myself in front of fox news and that was a big mistake i i came close to just leaving it was really depressing since i've stopped going out to like everything places yeah fortunately my kind of incidental exposure to fox news has radically decreased so that's um, good i love that for you yeah quality of life improvement thanks pandemic um well speaking of the pandemic uh when we met it was summer 2020 so if i recall correctly it, it was my first time going to a social gathering and i think i talked about it that week on the podcast how anxious it made me to like be around people and all the feelings that come along with that which you have a lot to speak on yeah i do i do but like it, it's funny that you say that because that was also our first social gathering of that summer and on the way to the lake i get a text from my parents and my parents were the like only people I saw that summer because I, you know, trusted them to be uh, COVID conscious, you know, in a pre-vaccine kind of context. So I'd seen them the weekend before. This was like in August or late July, you know. So yeah. first time I'd seen them since the shit hit the fan in in early March here uh, in Western Washington. Um, so like I saw them and then the next weekend we went to the lake and I get a text from my folks on the way there that said my dad had been exposed to COVID at work. And this was before COVID tests were ubiquitous and you could just go to Rite Aid and get a rapid test. And so I'm sitting there in the car about to go see people for the first time. And I'm like, 
uh, like, am I transmitting COVID? I'm gonna, like, yeah, there was a lot of anxiety to go, like, going to see people. And fortunately, you know, no one had COVID and we had a good time, but. Well, we were in Seattle and that was kind of the epicenter of a lot of things having to do with COVID. Yeah, but that, like, sense of ever-present anxiety over seeing people has, has not abated for me. I know it's abated for most most people but you know I'm still pretty much like housebound and isolating um I'm immunocompromised and I I have been for I mean that's a term that I only started employing because of the COVID context because I started having to articulate in language like hey y'all um my body's a piece of shit to begin with and like (laughs) Like if I get COVID, it, it's going to be a bad time. And then if I don't die, like cool, but my risk of developing long COVID symptoms is kind of, you know, unduly high relative to the average Joe, which, you know, the average Joe, the CDC has announced it has a 20% chance of getting long COVID, uh, you which know, if they high. get COVID in the first place. It is that sounds high. extremely high. Yeah. That's for, scary as shit that can be like totally disabling like to the point where you are bed bound you know that's a that's a really high number yeah we'll talk about all your health health issues and everything like I want to know how this has affected you but before COVID like what's your relationship with mental health been I mean I have been an anxious and depressed person from the womb it's like built into my mitochondria like uh descendant from you know the original mother of my family line or whatever but so like I've always had mental health issues I have not always articulated it as such and most of that has to do with growing up just in the you know 90s and early 2000s where mental health like the popular culture understanding of mental health issues is absolutely still not like it's imperfect and there's still built-in stigma but it is so like radically different than what it was you know even like 15 years ago when I was a teenager I've always been like a high functioning you know type of person like I have that type a personality (laughs) yeah 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 air quotes And, you know, was able to channel, you know, that sort of vibrational energy into, like, as a kid into school. And so I excelled at school, but then I suffered from, um, like, I was sexually harassed and assaulted as a child by my peers uh, and never got help for that. And so I've got, like, kernels of trauma that over time just kind of snowballed into like a pretty dense nugget of body image and like sex health issues but like in addition to anxiety I've also had like major depressive disorder like the first time I thought about killing myself was like when I was 14 Mm -hmm. and as a teenager it was hard for me to articulate 
kind of the depth of that despair because doing so in my particular family context uh, was fraught. I mean, my parents both have mental health issues of their own and didn't have the tools to deal with their own issues while I was a child. So of course, they're not going to be equipped to help their children, you know? That's my deepest, darkest fear, by the way. And one of the reasons why I'm never having kids. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say the the one time I did like talk to my parents and was like, hey, like something's not good in my brain space here, parents. My mom took me to a doctor. I was a military dependent. My my dad was in the Air National Guard for Washington State. And so, you know, we went to the military healthcare system. Yeah, same. So, you know, it's like uh, absolute garbage. But I go and I see a doctor and I like talk about what I'm feeling, experiencing. And he's like, you know what helps me reading the Bible? And I was like, (laughs) what the fuck? I wasn't expecting you to say that. I was, that is kind of flabbergasting actually. Yeah. So that was like the first. And then for like a decade, the last time I saw treatment for mental health issues, I was like, don't blame you. Even as a teenager, I was like, uh, I'm pretty sure I tried to read like an extreme teen Bible because also like, that's a whole area of my like psychic development is Memory issues of religion. Oh my God. <laughs> that's so great. What, was your family religious? No, we weren't religious. We were agnostic. But uh, like my parents were very much, you know, we are agnostic, but we support you children if you want to like explore that. My mom uh, is a lapsed Catholic. So, you know, has very strong feelings about uh, institutionalized religion. And so, but like as a kid, you know, as a kid with anxiety, depression, and like, social issues I tried every which way to like fit in with my peers and part of that in the specific context I grew up in was trying to become Christy because Uh like the cool kids were Christy and you know we're all in the same youth group and you know went to bible thumping summer camps and shit like that and I was like well, what, what's this magic sauce that you guys are getting that I'm not getting? Um, and so like, you know, I, I dabbled in, you know, Christianity as a teenager, like totally unguided, you know, flailing as you do when you're 15 and trying to figure things out. But then like, once I had that experience with that doctor, I was like, this is, this is bullshit. Um, and that pretty much ended my my explorations in Christianity. That's crazy. We had pretty much polar opposite experiences because I grew up extremely uncool and Christian as fuck. So this is very interesting for me to hear. (laughs) (laughs) So 14, you decided you didn't want any of this. Uh, How did you deal with your mental health after that? Like, where did you even go from there? I mean, I didn't. Um, (laughs) Pretty much untreated, like really severe mental health issues, uh basically until I started taking medication for my chronic health like my physical health issues then you know I started and and that wasn't until I was like 25. What do you think this is kind of a tangent but what do you think about people who kind of separate mental and physical health issues because I, I kind of see them as totally intertwined especially with the state of U.S. healthcare. Uh, it's just total anxiety and pain all the time 
but what, what's your experience with that? Like when did, I guess I'm talking a lot. Tell me about <laughs> when your, your chronic pain issues started and how you dealt with that. Yeah. So my patient narrative started in 2016, which is when essentially my body started falling apart with the quickness, but I have started reevaluating that narrative in, in the time of COVID because, um, you know, for a long time, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And for almost two years, you know, doctors were like, you're anxious and depressed. And I'm like, dude, I have been anxious and depressed my whole life. This is something fucking different. I was gaslit like continuously by the medical system and I was put on imipramine, which is like a horse tranquilizer of a, of a SSRI. And I was like, this is making me feel worse. So is there like something else? And it wasn't until I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia in 2017 that I was prescribed Cymbalta, which is an SNRI. So it's a different class of uh, antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication than like say Zoloft, uh-huh. which is an SSRI. So Cymbalta is prescribed frequently for both generalized anxiety disorder and for chronic pain. And, you know, that's when I started getting treatment for the mental health issues. But oh. I, I've had like two cups of coffee, by the way, so I'm going to be all over the place. Um, love it, love it. <laughs> yeah, so like for a long time, I had the sense of like one day I was healthy and the next day I wasn't. But when I go back to my medical records in like my journals and like, frankly, my social media posts, um, because I've used social media as sort of like a public journal, you know, pretty much from the get go. I realized that. So in college, I went to um, Washington State University and I was there from 2009 to 2013. Um, so I was there during swine flu and WSU happened to have like the biggest outbreak of swine flu in a college setting, like during that epidemic pandemic, I don't know what they would have classified it as, but um, I for sure got it uh, because it was the most acutely sick I have ever been in my life. And I posted about it like in 2010, I was like, it's been two weeks and I'm still sick. And that was the end of the semester. And so I basically spent the whole summer recuperating from swine flu and then I felt better. Um, But then I started the following winter, I started having like these really painful blisters on my hands and my feet. Um, Uh And like I started having gastrointestinal issues for the first time, like in my life after being like, frankly, a a very regular pooper. Uh, Isn't that fun? (laughs) Don't you just love that? (laughs) love life's little surprises in retrospect a bunch of like little symptoms popped up between when I got sick with swine flu in 2010 to when my body fell apart in 2016 I just didn't have like a context for piecing it all together and no doctors were helping me yeah why would you have a context yeah because before COVID it's like you, you get sick with a virus and then you get better that was the narrative there was no common understanding and there's so much we don't know too yeah you're a prime example yeah I've considered myself mentally ill you know from basically birth but then I have been chronically ill from a physical 
perspective since 2016. And your question before I started rambling was about the relationship between the two mental and physical health. And I think they are absolutely interconnected, but there is a hesitancy in the disability and chronically in chronic illness community to, to talk about the extent to which they are interconnected because so much of the, you know, dominant medical narrative at this time wants to dismiss us as being like psychosomatic, like, oh, you're, you're only experiencing physical pain because you just need to like, listen to the call map and like meditate about it. Do some yoga. Yeah, that's a huge pet peeve of mine. And not just because I can't afford more apps. <laughs> yeah. So this happened 2016. What kind of support did you have at the time? Or like, what, what did you think was going on? So like the kind of like catalyzing sequence of events was my husband and I, we got married in 26, like spring 2016 and bought a house. And when we were moving into the house, I spent like a whole weekend painting, like painting interiors of the house. And um, in retrospect, I should have like had a respirator or something, but I, I wasn't even 26. I was 25. I'm just painting the house, dude. Yeah. Like, let me, let me hang out with some pizza and like, as one does <laughs> until the end of the weekend when my, I had intense burning nerve pain in my feet to the point where I could not put pressure on them. And I was like, this is fucking weird. And um, that lasted for a week. And then I started spontaneously vomiting at work. And I was like, this is weird. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> so I started urgent care and had a bunch of blood tests done. And then, I, you know, they gave me an IV. And like my blood test came back like super fucking weird. Like my white blood cells were off the charts and a bunch of different like indicators of something systemically wrong came up and then I was told oh you're probably just dehydrated oh fuck that and then I never got better and so then I was like well um I'm not getting better so what's wrong with me doctors and they were like "Mm, I don't know you're an otherwise healthy 26 year old we don't know what to do with you and so I basically (laughs) It became a part-time job trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Um, And financially, I'm sure that was a huge stress on you too. On top of everything else, you know, it sucks that we have to think about it that way. But unfortunately, that's the first place my mind goes. Yeah, I was disproportionately lucky compared to the average like disabled and chronically ill and frankly, even healthy person with, you know, the occasional illness because I had a job with the state that gave me consistent healthcare. And so like, you know, once I paid out my deductibles, it wasn't a huge financial stream because I never had to be hospitalized or anything like that. Um, We don't have to talk about finances. It's just, you know, (laughs) America. No, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's a major consideration, you know, especially for me now, trying to come to terms with the sense that I am, you know, 31 going on 32. And I am not going, like, I know, like on a intrinsic level, that I'm not going to be able to work for much longer with the current pace of decline that I'm experiencing. And so it's like, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have been able to like, 
keep a job, a full-time job in in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to now begin saving up for like that inevitable future when I can't work. And it'll just be like my husband, who is an underpaid public school teacher, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's like, I'm saving up for a, a time that is in the near to medium term future, you know, at some point that savings reservoir is going to run out. Like, yeah. and then, and it's then, fucking depressing and scary. Cause yeah. you know, I mean, it, it sounds like it's, it's escalated relatively rapidly. And I can only imagine that your mental health has continued to suffer too. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I have been pretty consistently like suicidal <laughs> for the past uh, 18 months or so. And it's like, that is something that I am in therapy. Like I'm lucky in that I have a, my therapist is also chronically ill. And so I don't have to convince him that my physical existence is painful. That is the the dominant characteristic of living in this body that is Nicole Hughes. It's just grisly ball of like pain. And Mm. so the mental illness in my brain is like, you're going to just continue living in pain like this, bro? Like, it's hard to find reasons to keep going. I am isolated. You know, my friends have largely abandoned me because, you know, they want to continue they want to go back to like a pre-COVID life and they largely have. Um, and I can't because I don't want to become more disabled than I already am. Of course. And they, you know, are unwilling to make accommodations for me and in fact have iced me out of their social interactions and mm-hmm. stuff. So it's like society at large tells me that like, you know, because I am less productive or whatever. I'm therefore less valuable. My friends have largely abandoned me. My body is a piece of shit. And so then it's like, so what, what's, what, why? Why keep going? Like, why continue? At a very like fundamental elementary level, the reason why I'm still here is because I have three dogs and you can't explain suicide to dogs. And that is the logic that like keeps me alive. (laughs) (laughs) All right. First of all, I get it. And sorry for laughing earlier. I I deal with trauma by joking and, and, uh, yeah, me too. That's why I converted to Judaism is because I was like, Oh, here's like a whole culture that is making memes out of their generational trauma. Okay. I'm in like, I'll join your club. Oh my God. I love it. Um, when did that happen? By the way, when, you don't have to talk too much about it if you don't want to, but, uh, cause I, I think you were in the process of converting when I met you, right? Yeah. I, um, you know, I've always been kind of, as I said, interested in religion and in my youth, I pursued Christianity just because that was the dominant like milieu, but I've always, you know, had an intellectual curiosity about religion and like philosophy and shit like that and um when I was young I actually like and I have like a I have a notebook I love it (laughs) so when I was a kid like 11 or 12 I wrote like a bucket list because I was like I need a, a reason to I mean I've always been an existentialist at some level and so like I have this list of life's hopes 
Wait, can you hold um, that too close to the camera? I want to take a screenshot. So, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So, oh, do you want me to read them or you want me? You, you should read oh, them. You should I'll read them. them. So, okay, <laughs> holding it up. <laughs> uh, number one is write a book. And I've done, I wrote a novel. It's a, sh- a shitty novel. Um, but we will I did talk that. about it. So, check, wrote a book. Two, read an encyclopedia. <laughs> Like, Wait, how okay. old were you? Like 11. <laughs> you're, you're my hero now. Uh, carry on. And then number three is become Jewish. Like what? I totally, I totally forgot about this. So I obviously had this sense of like, I knew enough about Judaism that I was like, I want to be part of this. And then I forgot about it. In 2019, I joined Twitter because I wrote this novel and I knew that the writing and publishing industry is largely on Twitter. You can meet literary agents on Twitter and shit like that. And so, you know, I joined the writing community on Twitter 2019 to ostensibly like try to get this book published. There's no surprise that there's a lot of uh, Jews who write. And so it's like I started following writers who happen to be Jewish. And then I started following rabbis on Twitter. And Rabbi, uh, her name's Rabbi Dania Rutenberg. She, you know, has these really good threads about Judaism and like progressive Judaism espouses and um, I was diving really deep into it and then I heard on uh, NPR like this review for a new translation of the Hebrew Bible by Robert Alter by training he's like a literature scholar he like studies literature but he also has this focus in um jewish uh, literature and so kind of his magnum opus is this translation of the hebrew bible from from the hebrew into english and he did it over the course of 30 years his framing for this translation is to like restore the poetry that is inherent in the hebrew that just wasn't coming through in the English translations and it like pissed him off. And he, so he's like, I'm just going to do it all myself. And it took him 30 years. And then the complete body, like three volume body of work was published. And I was like, this seems cool. Number five on my list of life's hopes is to read the Bible. Oh, there you go. If if I'm going to read the Bible, this is the version that I'm going to read because it's not from a Christian perspective. It's from the perspective of, you know. It's how it was written. Like it's original. Yeah. (laughs) It hasn't been warped. And so it's like, I'm reading the Hebrew Bible and I'm following rabbis on Twitter. And I was like, something just stuck. And I was like, I want to be Jewish. And then I started like the process of converting. I, like I reached out to the local rabbi here in Olympia. Um, like it was actually the week of Purim, which is a, a Jewish holiday. And it was the week that everything shut down in March, 2020. It's a fun little quarantine project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My quarantine project is like, I basically did homework to become Jewish. But in the course of my Jewish education, my mom gave me the stack of notebooks that she found from my youth. And then I found this list from when I was 11 that said I wanted to become Jewish. And it's like, oh, cool. I just got chills. That's fucking insane. <laughs> um, we're going to take a break. And when we come okay. back, Nicole's going to finish reading her list. I'm literally <laughs> on the edge of my seat. See you soon. 
Okay, let's talk about your list. So you had write a book, read an encyclopedia, become mm-hmm. Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really curious, like, what else is there? Like, where can you go from there? Number four, live in Ireland. And then I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to learn four other languages. I kind of know Spanish. I took four years of Spanish, including in college. Um, and then I know the Hebrew alphabet and that's about it. Hey, you're halfway there. <laughs> yeah. Talk about reasons not to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. I got two more languages. You got two more languages to learn. <laughs> so you were in this world of of Jewish authors and uh, literature, mm-hmm. and you were in the process of converting. And it sounds like your parents were involved too. Like, that's really cool. Uh, they knew mm-hmm. about it, at least. My mom, in the course of like her adult development, has become like straight up hardcore atheist. And so she was actually kind of uncomfortable a little bit when I started converting, because I think her experience of religion is one of trauma. And so in her mind, she's like, okay, I, I understand wanting to know more, but why do you want to like join the club? And it's hard to articulate to people who have been, you know, frankly, victimized by the weaponization of religion and compulsory religion, you know, in the course of growing up. But, you know, as an adult, it, it was an act of me choosing an intentional community. It's not like my beliefs changed. My beliefs didn't change. What what I found was that my beliefs were resonating with this existent religion. And I think people who are Christian, they get this dogma drummed into them where you have to believe in God, the sky daddy, who is an anthropomorphized deity who artificially inseminated a woman named Mary and put his midichlorians in her. And then that was Jesus and Jesus died for your sins. And if you don't believe in the supernatural part of it, then um, you're going to hell and you're not a real Christian. I want to applaud right now, but I don't want to ruin the audio. (laughs) I'm just picturing entering Christianity as a newcomer. That's kind of a, I mean, basically the idea is you have to change to fit in. Whereas you're saying you found this religion and it was saying all the things, it was speaking your language. Yeah. Part of it is people don't have a a good understanding of what Judaism is to begin with. They, They believe that this Christologized kind of set of assumptions that there's such a thing as Judeo-Christian and that they are synonymous with each other and they are fucking not. (laughs) Like in Judaism, you do not have to believe in a supernatural sky daddy named Yahweh. You do not have to in order to be Jewish. In order to be Jewish, you have to like enter into basically a social contract between yourself, other Jewish people, and then humanity and life at large, where you're saying, like, I accept certain responsibilities, like, as a human actor in the way I'm going to engage with the world. And entering into that covenant is what makes you Jewish, not not what you believe. That's so fascinating to me. Yeah. How has converting affected your relationship with your pain, if any, Mm. or your mental health? I mean, well, earlier we were talking about pain and uh, I was going to ask whether your relationship with pain has changed 
over the years because for most people like myself, like pain is something that I experience occasionally, but I, I try to make it go away like as fast as possible with however means possible, but it's not something I live with 24 seven. And also there's that narrative that, you know, pain is not an enemy or like pain is, is natural. I, I don't know what I think about this. It's just things mm-hmm. that I've been hearing in, in the last few days. I think I read an article or something. So it's interesting that you're here now to talk about it. I don't know. Does any of that make sense? Yeah. In pain, my relationship with pain it has changed and shifted. Like I would experience as a young person, like I have um, endometriosis. And so like my menstrual periods have always been hellacious, but there was pain and then there was not pain. And becoming chronically ill to the point of disability where chronic pain is a symptom, pain is the norm for me now. Like I am always in pain. And what I've realized is that the way I deal with it, aside from, you know, the pharmacological solutions that I seek, including cannabis, I I include cannabis as a pharmacological treatment, But the way I deal with it is by dissociating. And in Judaism, there are two different schools of thought. There increasingly is this emphasis on embodied Judaism and embodied ritual. A lot of it is what the secular culture calls mindfulness, you know, where you become just more aware of your physical self and how you relate to, you know, physical reality. But for me, I'm like, I want to escape physical reality, y'all. I don't want to be mindful. (laughs) There's also this intellectualized Judaism where it places the emphasis on the the non-physical self in the, you know, what is the nature of self? Do we have a self that is beyond and supranatural to our atomic existence and I think yes you know I now believe that there is a metaphysical state of consciousness that when we are born into these physical bodies we are divorced from and then physical life is just an effort to return to that until we die and then we become one with a force or whatever um (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's that's a pretty good pitch. It has this realism that I'm I'm attracted to. <laughs> yeah, I love Judaism. It's like so fun. And the other thing that I really like about it is that like there's an emphasis on communal worship and, and prayer and song, but like a huge part of what it means to do Jewish and engage in a practice of faith is to study the Torah, like to study and to read books and to like talk about what you're reading. (laughs) Knowing what you're talking about? What? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like there, you know, the the evangelical Christian idea that like, you know, the Bible is the word, the absolute word of God and that it's been divinely inspired the entire time, blah, 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 blah. Like in Judaism, most Orthodox Judaisms would say like, yes, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh is divinely inspired, but it is not set in stone. And there's a 2000 year old history of interpreting that called the oral Torah or the Talmud in Jewish law derived from 
the Bible where it's like, it's the history of Jews trying to take the core principles of what is in the Bible and updating them for the evolution of human civilization. Yeah, see that, that's what I don't get is that like, why not take credit for evolving the interpretation and, you know, adapting as society moves on. Like, why not take credit for that? Humans are good at that. We're good at, you know, interpreting things and making art and like understanding things in our own way. Like to, to say that it hasn't changed in 2000 years, it's kind of bullshit. I'm just fighting yeah. so hard not to eye roll <laughs> when you were saying that. Yeah. Aside from your parents, how have people taken this news, this evolved Nicole? Um, I think most people have like taken it in stride. My husband really likes it because he's a, like a contrarian and he's been supportive of me on this journey. Like has used it as an opportunity to like combat Christian supremacy. He He's a teacher. And so like, yeah. you know, when his school does Christmassy stuff, he walks in with like this big light up Hanukkah sweater that I have. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. No, it's not just about the Christians. Like you can't blah blah blah. And so he, he likes it because he can fight people about it. <laughs> I think most of my peer group was confused, except for when I talk about it like this, and then they're like, "Okay, now I get it." Have you found that people don't want to listen? Uh, it 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 depends. There is one particular person I think who has decided not to like engage with me anymore on the basis of the fact that I am now religious and now like I'm I make fun of like Christianized atheists who apply their religious trauma to their analysis of all other world religions including minority religions like Judaism there are only 15 million Jews in the world they killed most of us off in the holocaust spoiler alert um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Dude, I, I fall into that category though like I have to fight really hard not to judge people who are religious because of my Christian upbringing I, I kind of had a, a come to Jesus moment pun intended where I was just like Christina you're just as bad as them and it's not an excuse but I guess I, I get where that's coming from and it's like you know when when atheists want to fight and they bring up like Examples of extremism within Judaism, you know, they bring up the abuses that happen within like Hasidic Jewish communities. And it's like, yeah, that extremism happens because it happens in all human. Yeah. Like it's a function of being human. You're going to have people whose primary value is the system of control. And they're going to impose that upon, you know, everyone within their sphere of influence. And it's not a characteristic uh, intrinsic to Hasidism in general, which is actually like a mystical movement within Judaism. But like you will find that everywhere. And where there is not religion, people come up with shit. Like they can Yeah, because we're people. QAnon, like Trump. Yeah. So like, it's like, I'm sympathetic to that, but I'm also impatient with people who are unwilling to consider the fact that there's actually something beneficial to religion in that it, you know, actually is a pro-social human adaptation that actually predates like homo sapiens as a category. 
it can help people and like it's what works yeah. for you you're not forcing everyone around you to convert to Judaism you know it's like why can't yeah. people just listen to what helps other people and let them be yeah and maybe and learn I, something in, in Judaism that's another like mark in the pro corner is that like Jews do not prophesize like we do not try to get people to convert like it's a difficult it took me over a year it's like it was like a an associate's degree in being Jewish it's not like I show up to a church and some guy named Mike get like dumps me in a tub and says <laughs> now you are Christian yeah like, it's ridiculous <laughs> when you think about it so I, I kind of want to get real here when we were messaging you said you wanted to talk about suicide what about your like what did you think about suicide and how has that affected your your own experience i'm really curious yeah suicide is an action of last resort and it's something that has always like fascinated me like even as a kid i was like that dark man like what you know when I wasn't suicidal I was you know I've always been curious about what drives people to suicide or how, how people do. like I how they do it I wished sometimes I could like that sounds dark as fuck but like it's I am fascinated by it too like how can someone do that and I you know I've been suicidal but no attempts or anything like that and it's just it fascinates me yeah I have not attempted suicide myself I've always been able to land at some sort of like logic function where at the end I don't want to even if I at my core believe that you know my life doesn't have value and that is that it is marked primarily by suffering I do know that people love me and that those people would be traumatized by my death and I don't want to traumatize them, even though I don't want to exist anymore. But that desire to not impose pain on others has always kind of been the dominant backstop. And, you know, that includes like my human and non-human family. Right. Like, you know, I was going to say. My... <laughs> <laughs> I have mixed thoughts uh, about living for other people, including pets. Do you think that's a that's a good argument? There are no good or bad arguments. There are just arguments, I think, mm. when it comes to um, dealing with suicidal ideation. And like, you know, the more I learn about the state of mental health care in relation to suicidal ideation in particular, like right now, the state of mental health care says you should be institutionalized. And it's like, actually, that... It, is deeply traumatizing to people and maybe we should be reducing the factors that cause people to feel like they need to kill themselves and to begin with like a lot of you know suicides are deaths of despair caused by economic trouble and yeah, it's like well that. maybe we should like restructure our fucking society such that we're taking care of people and that people's basic needs are met and that we're like building communities of care and networks of compassion with each other. It's a balancing act because obviously we can't do that overnight, but then that's what the dogs are for, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no, I, I really like that you said there's no good or bad arguments. There's just arguments. And at the end of the day, it's what gets you through the end of the day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what so what does get you through the end of the day? I mean, when I am in a spiral 
what gets me through it is just fucking get getting high and letting the pleasure centers of my brain overwhelm me for like just enough to until I fall asleep. <laughs> Same, dude. I, I feel like such a hypocrite because I'm sober from alcohol, but like I smoke hella weed and it, I, I don't have health insurance right now. And so I'm not on anti- antidepressants or anything. And like, God bless weed, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know what I would do without it, but it's hard to talk about. Yeah. Do you yeah. find any um, judgment in the religious community? No, like there's a subculture within Judaism that is like really into psychedelics and entheogens and using frankly drugs as like a gateway to the divine and so, I'm, giving, like, I'm giving you the side eye emoji in real life right now <laughs> like, it's real like i i can give no you like sign me up like i'm super <laughs> <laughs> there's like a whole conference circuit talking about like the science of psychedelics and the nature of consciousness and you know how basically jewish people are more much more inclined of viewing Judaism itself, not as like the ultimate truth. Even, you know, Orthodox Jews who believe that like Jews are the chosen people of God and, you know, the nation of of Israel, not the nation state of Israel, is the body of, of priestliness on earth. And like the purpose of Jewishness is to, you know, enact mitzvot such that you bring on a state of perfection that like heralds the Messiah. Like it's very structured. (laughs) Yeah. Even those people. It's very different from like the Christian sense where like things have to get really bad before Jesus comes again. In, in Judaism, it's like I'm waiting. things have to become really good before the Messiah will come to begin with. And so, wow, um, that's actually kind of revolutionary when you think about it. Yeah. If we want to be liberated from this plane of existence, what we have to do, like first and foremost, is love each other. So there's a, a body of Jewish people who are like, psychedelics they are a pro-social tool you really love other people man when you're on drugs <laughs> sometimes <laughs> and, at least sometimes other times like you're you know deeply paranoid and like everything's out to get you but you know it's a tool like anything else and, exactly uh, it's not good or bad it just exists and if it helps yeah. us why not use it yeah Wrapping up, uh, I want to talk about your writing because I know that you have started a new venture recently and I've read some of your poetry. Uh, I'm going to read one in the intro to this, but I'm not going to tell you which one. (laughs) But um, do you want to do a little plug, talk about how that has helped you on your your journey? Yeah, I guess like if I have anything to plug, it's my Instagram page where I'm like, posting shit I have a patreon that I am guilty about because I don't like my productivity is not such that I have like patron specific content like aside from what I publicly post but shout out to like the three people who give me a dollar a month uh, <laughs> on patreon but the instagram page uh is at right words like stones A lot of things in my life right now relate back to Judaism and like that relates to um, the Jewish practice when you visit a grave site, you you don't bring flowers, you bring stones and you place stones on, you know, whoever you're visiting's headstone because stones are a symbolic sort of like tethering of the memory of that person to this 
plane of reality. Um, another explanation is that like stones, I mean, they last longer than flowers. Flowers fade and die, but a stone will last millennia. For me, you know, writing is a way of tethering myself to this plane of reality. Which is hard, especially yeah. if you have mental health issues and dealing with suicidal ideation and chronic pain. It's fucking hard. Yeah. Writing is, it's the only thing I want to do with my life. I wish I could get paid for it. Um, I wish I didn't have to do capitalism. Like if I was a trust fund kid, I would just write all the time. And the novel I wrote was a science fiction novel about a, a woman who gets abducted by aliens because I'm really into UFOs. And I write poetry. Um, I write personal essays. I will vomit words on a page about pretty much anything. Is there anything that you wish people knew about chronic pain or about your experience that, that you find it really hard to convey? Yeah, I mean, I've been screaming into the void for the past two years about people taking COVID seriously. And it's not enough to just to get fully vaccinated. That is important. You know, it's like the first line defense against hospitalization, serious acute illness and death. But as we saw with the Omicron wave, um, 40% of the deaths from Omicron were among people who were fully vaccinated. Mm. Um, if you are fully vaccinated, that only reduces your risk of getting long COVID by 15%. So I say to folks, if you do not want to run the risk of getting long COVID and becoming permanently disabled, and miserable like I am, you should wear a fucking mask everywhere you go, regardless of who you are with. And that is that is the simplest way we can like get a handle on this and prevent further surges. And it is a massive failure of the Biden administration that he has abdicated all responsibility for providing any leadership on this. So uh, that's my that's kind of like my final plug is like if you don't want to if you don't want to be like me wear a fucking mask <laughs> <laughs> what if I wore a mask with your face on it that said that <laughs> uh, yeah, even better <laughs> no I mean it, it sucks you know it, life is never going to go back to the way it is but a lot of us still live in denial like we we've been traumatized and it's hard to accept that you know, we're not going to go back to that place and things are going to get worse if we don't keep working at it. And that's really hard for some people to hear. Just, just yeah. try to think about other people at the end of the day, just try to think about people outside of your limited bubble of experience. Like not everyone is as healthy as you might be. And also your health can be taken away overnight. Yep. Yep. Oh man, I'm all worked up now, but, uh, <laughs> you, you did your job, I guess. <laughs> No, I really, I really love this. And thank you so much for being vulnerable and like coming on to talk. It means a lot. It's good to see yeah. your face. Yeah, it's good to see you. It's good to talk to you. I'm glad we've kept in touch. Um, yeah. And that sometimes some connections transcend uh, voice. So um. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We met through my ex. I, I, I feel like I mention him every other episode or so. It probably annoys my current <laughs> partner a ton, but. 
we're still friends, you know, like, I know I love, I love everyone that I met through that relationship. And like, you're one of the, one of the people I still keep up with. And I just, it's so great. Well, I I appreciate you having me on and giving me leeway to fucking yak my mouth off. I am really glad that you're alive to talk your fucking mouth off. (laughs) Please, (laughs) please stay that way. You know what? As long as I have three dogs, chances are if I die, it'll not be by my own hand. Uh, All right. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, do you have anything to say to listeners in farewell? Take care of yourself. Fuck the system. Question everything. Except for like, you know, don't question everything that you go to fucking QAnon. Um, (laughs) All right. I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Okay, bye. Hello, friends. It's Christina again. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to support Pickles and Vodka, you can give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Pickles and Vodka Podcast. If you could relate to anything at all we talked about today, or you just want to say hi, email me at picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at Pickles and Vodka Podcast. Stay safe and have a good week. Bye.